This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Where does love come from? Because you may be, uh, if you talk to biologists, they'd say, oh, well, um, it's kind of like this chemical in your brain that encourages you to kind of socially connect. Uh, and they've got this kind of little bit of, they've got to do a bit of a jump to get this, well, how does that work? How does socially connecting rather than fighting for yourself, how does that create uh, uh, emotions? And so we've got this idea where we've got survival of the fittest as a mechanism for creating uh, community or families or people, but yet we've got love at the core, and they feel like totally opposites. How does that work? I think we need to look elsewhere than down to the earth and evolutionary biology, uh, and you would know that because we're in church this morning. So here's a quote from a guy that we quote, uh, uh, quote often, a guy called Glenn Srivener. He writes this, we feel love is the greatest thing because the greatest thing, God, is love. The best things in life really are our relationships the meeting of minds and the joining of hearts. If we think the universe is basically material stuff, or if God is solitary, raw power, we won't understand it. But if we realise that the centre of everything is the God who is a life-giving family of love, then only then will we re- we, what we really value, love and life, beauty and belonging, faithfulness and family make sense. I mean, the reality is that if we're just chemicals... What's family all about? You know, what's dedications all about? What are, what are they about? You know, what's the basis for your moral choices if you're just chemicals? If we're just chemicals, that, that life has got no meaning and no purpose. And so as we come to celebrate uh, Dan and Heather's uh, gift of uh, birth of Joshua, you know, they says, why, why does that matter? Why do you matter? If all you are is matter, why do you matter? Perhaps there's there's something more. And as we lift our heads a little uh, and look at what God is like, maybe we'll get the idea why love's important. But it's not just as straightforward as that. I'm going to ask you another question now. Well, if you think of God, what do you think about? What word do you think about? If you think of God, you might come up with the same word, but you might not. If you think of God, tell, uh, you might say, I don't think about God. That's fine. It's a valid answer. If you think about God, turn to the person next to you and say, this is the characteristic of God that I think about. Okay, let's see what we got. Love. Okay, here's this then. Let me just play a little game with you. I'll be God, okay? It's a stretch, I know. Uh, but I'll be God this morning. And I'm going to be, before you lot are all made, before you lot are all created, there's another discussion for another day, but before anything exists, here I am. I'm all on my own. Before anything existed, if I was God all on my own, if a God existed like that, who would I love? It's just me, remember. You'd love yourself, wouldn't you? All, if God was all alone, all that you could do is love yourself. 
Love wouldn't come naturally to you. I think another word might come more naturally to you, like narcissism or self-obsession. And it's interesting, if we think about God who's all on his own, before anything existed, love wouldn't be the first word that comes to mind. But yet it is the first word that comes to mind, because actually the God that, uh, that Jesus reveals actually is a loving community of three. Is one united in essence and love and purpose and will and mind, but yet three persons. So if there's three of us, I could get Rob and Nick up and we could get the dog and we could have a loving community of four. But if we got this all, you could see that we could actually have a chance at loving each other. We could actually have some sort of relationship. And it's interesting when, when, the, when Jesus tells the, uh, the, the first followers, his first followers to pray, he says to pray, you do it, at ch- uh, uh, if you ever went to uh, that, that school, you pray, our Father. You don't pray, our mighty, powerful, solo God. You don't pray, God, who, it's all about you. You don't pray, God, who's the creator, God, who's the ruler. You, he says, pray, my Father, our Father. Because fundamentally, at his very core, God is a loving Father who's ever loved his Son in the joy of the Holy Spirit. That makes God fundamentally different, and I don't want to poke at other gods who might be single gods who say they don't beget and they they never have a Son, and they're all alone in power. Other gods, but they would be narcissistic, obsessive rulers who'd only create us to be servants. But a God who's a father creates because love has a way of overflowing. Love has a way of overflowing. Okay, but if you, if you think about a, a married couple and they decide to have children, they decide to have children, why do they do that? Why do they do that? They do that because it's the, the nature of love to overflow. It's the nature of love to give themselves away. And so you have, uh, you have a little Noah, and you love Noah, and then you have a little Joshua, and you take your love and slice it in half and say, that's for you and that's for you. It doesn't work like that, does it? Your love actually grows and develops. God, who is a father, ever loving his son by the Spirit, is like a fountain of love that overflowed. And he said, let's create people like us to love. Let's create people in our image to love and to be loved. And that's why you do that. That's why you love. And that's why love is at the center of a family. Paul writes, uh, the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians uh, chapter 3, says, he's talking about praying. He says, I kneel before the Father from whom every father, every family on heaven and earth is named. In other words, This is how it works. It's not that we are families and we think, wouldn't it be nice if we invented a God who's a father? That would be quite nice. No, God is a loving father. And he said, let's create families in our image. I have a kneel before the Father from whom every family on heaven and earth is named. I pray that through his spirit, that's his giving himself away in your inner being, 
Christ may live in your hearts through faith. I pray that being rooted and established in love, you may grasp how wide and long, I don't know the, which is wide, what's the difference, wide and long, anyway, wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. What Paul's saying is that this God who's a father, his love overflows and he wants to overflow to us. He wants to overflow by his very essence, his very love, his spirit. And it's such a strong overflowing love that it overflows to them all. And that's why we have kids. That's why we have kids. We are mothers and fathers who pour our love into children because God is a father who pours his love and life into his son. God is a family whose love is so wide and long and high and deep. It's too wide and high and long and deep to be contained. God's love must overflow and be enlarged, finding its way into your and my hearts. Well, that's lovely, isn't it? But actually, the world we see is messed up. The world we see isn't quite that loving, idyllic, divine family that we see. The world we see actually is broken and messed up. Families, we want love to be at the core, but yet so often love is hard to find. We want faithfulness to be at the core, but faithfulness is so hard to find. We want self-giving to be at the part, but selfishness is so easy to find. Why? The Bible tells us that, that our our, our relationships, our experience of family is more disaster than divine, more broken than beautiful because we've basically said to God, I don't want your family. God makes an invitation. To be, I want you to be part of my family, to be my children. And we've said, no thanks, I don't want to be part of your family. I wrote in my notes that we turned our back on the invitation to share the life-giving love of God and suicidally orphaned ourselves. We've said, no thanks. The results of that are, are kind of shocking. I just wrote, instead of feeling the affirming delight of a heavenly father, who everybody wants to be delighted by, their, have their father delight in them, we say no. And what we feel is a sense of our own inadequacy and shame. Instead of having a God say, I love and delight in you, we're constantly feeling we're not quite there. It's called the imposter's dilemma. You feel if people really knew you, they wouldn't like you because we've turned away from the love of a father. Instead of a life-giving, overflowing love, what happens is we've become almost, I've used this term many times, we've become like a bit of a black hole. We're constantly trying to fill ourselves with love from somewhere else. We're trying to fill ourselves with love or relationships or stuff from someone else, insatiably trying to fill the emptiness in our hearts. Instead of finding our security in the love of God, we are endlessly restless and fearful. Most of us have fears. Most of us feel, what if that happens? What if my health goes? What if my job goes? What if my family breaks? We have fears because we've walked away from the security of God and we're restless. And tragically, because we've separated ourselves from the everlasting life of God, we feel this slow decay of emptiness and death. And these things flow into our parenting. There's loads more that could be said about that. Uh, but, but these things flow into our parenting. So I just want to bang through a couple of those. Some of you may have seen this content before, but I love it. Um, in fact, I'm going to mention a book. This is a great book. <laughs> it's called Daring Greatly. 
It's, it's a, how, to be the, how the courage to be vulnerable transforms the way we live, love, parent, and lead. Brenny Brown, she's an American professor. She has got faith uh, in, in Jesus, but, but actually that's not where it's written from. And she talks about, she did an amazing TED Talk that like, got so many views, and she talks about this uh, idea of, of parenting. Let me just give you a couple of quotes from her. That you've, If you've been around me, I'm sorry, uh, it's so good, I, I just want to read it to you again. So this sense of inadequacy, she talks about this sense of inadequacy that we feel. Brenny Brown writes, we, we'd love a colour-coded parenting handbook that answers all our unanswerable questions. It comes with guarantees and minimises our fears. We want to know if we follow certain rules and adhere to certain methods espoused by this or, their, this or that parenting expert, then our children will sleep through the night, be happy, make friends, achieve personal success, and stay safe. We kind of want a book, and you might even think, ha-ha, this is the book. <laughs> if I read this book, I'll know all the answers about how to be a great parent. There's got to be some book. And I, do, I know uh, if, you've, uh, if you've got kids... Uh, what happens is, if, if you meet people that haven't got kids, they're, they're always telling you how you could be a better parent. Is that true? But until you get to the point where you have kids and think, oh my word, it's a lot more complicated than I thought. So you look at other people, their kids are going mayhem, mayhem, mayhem in the coffee time, you know, the cake time afterwards, oh, what's going on? And you think, really, what kind of parents are they? <laughs> and then you have kids and you think, oh my word, I need the answers. Because it's not an exact science, it's easy. But the thing is, uh, you can't do it in books. It's not learned in books. But Brenny Brown goes on, and I think this is so powerful. She says, who we are. And how we engage with the world are much more strong predictors of how our children will do than what we know about parenting. Teaching our children to dare greatly, to live bold lives of integrity, love and faith, isn't so much, are you parenting in the right way, but are you the adult your child wants to be? Let's read that again. Are you the adult your child wants to be? God is not a God who sets up a, a book of rules and says, here it is, here are the rules. He sets himself on earth as Jesus Christ and say, I'm the man you want to be. And that's what she's saying about parenting. So Dan and Heather and every parent and everybody that cares about the next generation, it's not about finding the right parenting methods. It's much more about being the adult you or other children want to grow up to be. The term daring greatly, and we've got a number of Americans and people from across the Atlantic, Canadians as well, but we've got a number of Americans, and so I like to throw in an American quote. So my wife said, oh, you've got another American quote. In fact, Brenny Graham's from America as well, but, but this is definitely a guy from America. The, the term daring greatly comes from this quote by Theodore Roosevelt in Paris in 1910. It, it, this is about parenting. You might think it's about something else. It sounds like something from Gladiator. It's actually about parenting. It's not the critic who counts, nor the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or whether doer of deed could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, the, man, the, the mom and dad who are in the family, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood sometimes, who strive valiantly, who errs, who comes up short and again and again. But there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who... But who does actually strive to do the deeds? 
who knows great enthusiasm, the great devotions, who spends himself on a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, or at worst, if he fails, at least he fares, fails daring greatly. So that his place shall never be those cold, timid souls who neither know victory or defeat. But there's a sense where um, it's not about do you get to do it right in life. It's actually that you get to do it. That you get to dare greatly. But the thing is, parenting doesn't really happen if you focus on parenting. It doesn't really happen if you focus on parenting. It focuses on happen. It happens if you have that great cause to live for. That's what Roosevelt was saying. If you've got a great cause, if you give yourself in a great cause, that's how you live daring. That's how you live great. That's how you live large. And and so Christians don't have a Christians don't have a monopoly on good parenting. You know, you look around at God first. We're we're erring. We're messing up. We're we're failing. We're trying again. We're doing it right. It's not perfect. Christians don't have a monopoly on good parenting. But what they do have, what Christians do have, is a great cause. What Christians do have is a great cause. The reality is that what we're trying to do is, is to, to fix the world one life at a time. We're trying to invite the, the, the world into the love and life of God, invite the world into God's family. I don't know if you don't have a worthy cause that's called God and his cause. The reality is the cause is going to be you and your stuff. I don't think that's very exciting. I don't think that's very worthy. I don't think that's very motivational. It's a bit turned in. It's a bit narrow. If you've got no faith in God, what is your great cause that you're going to live for? What are you going to do that your kids say, I want to be that kind of adult? So what happens is that because we lack a great cause, most of us just focus on our kids. We focus on being focused on our kids. That, that becomes the cause. It becomes the cause to provide the best education for your kids or to provide the best university place or the best holidays or the best experience for your kids. We focus on our kids. We center on our kids. Instead of focusing on some great cause, we center on our kids. And it sounds a good idea. PJ and Ashley Smythe, who've, uh, who've, who've visited us as a church and involved with us as a church, they wrote this. If we merely center our eyes around children then their lives will centre on themselves. Subtly at first, their child, even the baby, begins to set the tone, the programme and the pace of the home. Philosophically, we're told that to be good parents, we fit around the baby. But before you know it, your routine becomes focused on little Johnny. Could be little Joshua, hope not. Little Joshua's feeding schedule, sleeping schedule, and then his moods and wants and desires. Instead of him joining your family, you've joined his. If it's a bit of form, you decide not to go out in the evening or to go to church and so on. By the age of two or three, this subtle pattern of I usually get my way is ingrained in the child. So we see crying and sulking and other manipulative behaviours and parents who appease and capitulate rather than lovingly challenge. As the child grows through life, they're in for a terrible shock when they realise that the rest of the world are not as good at pandering to their every whim as mum and dad. And it feels like the right thing to do. It feels like the right thing to say, I'm going to give everything to my kids. But the bottom line is that they end up thinking that's how the world is. That the world is shaped around them. The world is selfish. And that's fine. That the survival of the fittest is fine. In the book of 
Proverbs, King Solomon says this, start with God, I'm nearly finishing, start with God, the first step in wisdom and learning is bowing down to God. One of the things, Naomi and I talked about this, we were going to do like some interview with some kind of ideas, Naomi was going to share ideas and I was going to share ideas, but we kind of didn't manage to pull it off together, but we, were co- we had a conversation driving up last week to Newcastle in the car about what would we say. And I think Naomi, she was really animated. Once we got talking, she was really animated uh, uh, and she's kind of saying things. But one of the things that came through really strongly is that, that we said that we're not going to have the, join the kids' family. We're going to be caught up in something bigger. We're going to let our lives live for something bigger. We're going to live for something larger. We're going to live for God and his cause. And what we've done is we've moved around and done all the things that parenting experts say you shouldn't do. We've moved to inner city, inter, inner city Manchester, uh, you know, Coronation Street. Uh, there's still some streets like that. We kind of lived near there. Uh, you know, uh, there was lots of difficulties, crime, broken families, and we kind of lived there. But all the experts say, no, don't live there because it's going to mess up your kids. But actually, in, in being brave, in daring greatly... I think our kids have learnt some things. They're broader and, and they're able to cope with challenges. The thing is, if you, if, you, if you always try to secure your kids away from trouble and difficulty, the reality is you don't teach them to cope with life. If we're fa- fearful parents always chronically intervening and rescuing and protecting our lives, then we're going to produce kids who can't cope with challenge, you can't cope with adversity, unable to hope, unable to overcome. If you're the kind of parent that's always on the phone to the school because so-and-so, so-and-so's had, you know, your little son's got a scratch on his knee or he got pushed around in the classroom or someone took his apple. If you're on the phone like that, what are you going to create? You're going to create this kid that thinks, man, I can't cope with life. Anything that difficult comes, is gonna, I'm going to, I can't cope with it. So one of the things that Naomi talked as we talked in the car, we said, we, we just let the kids get in there. Let the kids live big and bold, you know, let them climb trees, let them do crazy things, let's not wrap them in cotton wool. Let them experience life. <laughs> and instead of phoning the school, we talk to them. So Naomi would say, I remember when my, my middle son was being bullied, she'd say, what does that bully feel? How does he feel? Or when they're going through... Through, through school and they're, they're getting kind of ribbed because I do what I do and they believe what they believe about Jesus, we didn't say, oh, isn't that terrible? Isn't that terrible? We'd say, well, why, why, do you believe, why do we believe that? Why do we believe that that's true? Why do you talk to your friends about it? When, when, when their friends were going off and having, getting drunk and having sex in the sixth form, we didn't say, oh, don't go to the parties. We said, what's motivating that? What's the end point of that? Let's talk about that. Truth and faith are better armour against a challenging world than comfort and safety. Let me finish with this thought. Cheltenham was voted the best town to bring up your kids. The Daily Telegraph voted it as the best town to bring up your kids. But I think, yes, if you want great schools, great. If you want nice cafes and restaurants, great. If you want places to to hang out, great. If you want a life that's comfortable and easy, great. Cheltenham is a great time to bring up your kids. But if you want your kids to be daring greatly, if you want your kids to live big and bold, I think there's a lot of things working against Cheltenham. 
that draws us into our sofas and into our lattes and around our dining rooms and the endless chatter about which grammar school in Gloucester your kids are going to get into. And the problem is, we never dare greatly. We never dare greatly. We never say, God, you're the loving Father who created families. I'm going to join your purpose and I'm running with you and believing that my kids are going to be different. Now, my kids aren't here, they're at university, so it's quite handy, isn't it? But Andy and Vic's kids are here. But they're making a crazy decision. They're making a crazy decision. They're moving from the best town in the country to bring up kids to inner-city London. Why? Why would you do that? They do that because they're caught up in a bigger story than just their comfort and their life. They're going to move this autumn uh, to, to, to Wembley, Brent. It's a deprived area. There's lots of challenges, financial challenges. The kids are more likely to be bullied at school. There's not nice cafes to take, go around and not nice parks to walk in. Why would you do that? Because somewhere along the line, if you're going to be a parent or not, you've got to find what are you going to live for. And they're saying, we're going to live because we want to share the love of Jesus with people in North London. And we want to say, We've been invited into God's family. Why don't you? Yeah. Yeah. A hero of mine, Martin Luther King, said this. I decided early to give my life to something eternal and absolute. Not to these little gods that are here today and gone tomorrow, but to God, who is the same yesterday, today and forever. God, as we uh, dedicate Josh this morning and we think about families, I pray, Lord, that you'd lift us out of the small gods that busy our lives, the small gods that take us away from living large, living greatly. Lord, that we'd live for a great cause, that we'd be the adults our children want to become. Lord, I thank you that you have come to earth to draw us, Jesus, into your great family. And as we celebrate family this morning, we say, would you draw us once again into that great story? Deliver us from our small stories, our fears and inadequacies, and catch us up, Lord Jesus, in your great mission to save the world. Amen. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.